Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast that we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts. The goal here is to give you a glimpse inside of how things really work professionally and personally, at least in our world, our universe. And this way, you'll get to see who we really are here at SkyBridge, who I am, and I can share with you the many faces of success and wealth, and to let you in on how we all got here, because it's important to understand that, that we all have some level of greatness inside us, and we can tap into it and help each other. It takes a lot of hard work and intense focus, but the possibilities are there. It's up to you to find what motivates you to get you on your path. Uh, But I can assure you that once you find something you're passionate about, you start to get really good at it, and then really big things start happening. I take these conversations here in TMI seriously, but I don't take myself seriously. I think that's super important to know. Uh, It's a way for me to give back, but over 25 years in business, I've had enough ups and downs uh, to realize that the people that take themselves seriously are the ones that are ultimately going to have the biggest problems. It's a great opportunity for me, though, however, to explain to people how to forge ahead, uh, how to find great joy in their lives. Doing this, as an example, is great joy for me. Knowing what I know now and being able to sometimes share that or, frankly, uh, not knowing something but being sitting across from a very intelligent guest is a way for me to learn things as well. So TMI is a place to ask us anything, uh, any of your wild and crazy stories. You can share with us your weaknesses, your strengths, uh, something we're doing right or something that we're doing wrong. You can email that to podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. For those of you that have never met me before, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital, but I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor. I've got the privilege of hosting the iconic TV program, Wall Street Week, which we brought back, uh, put on the air a year ago. Gary Kaminsky is my co-host. It's on the Fox Business Network Friday evenings at 8 p.m. We replay it on Saturday morning at 9 a.m. and then Sunday again at the same time. I'm also an author. I've written two books. One is called The Little Book of Hedge Funds, uh, and the second book is called Goodbye Gordon Gecko: How to Find Your Fortune Without Losing Your Soul. Uh, both of those books were a lot of fun to write. I'm about to publish on October the 25th from John Wiley and Sons my third book, which is on entrepreneurship. For first-time listeners, let's face it, I'm not the typical Wall Street guy. I live still two miles from my folks. Uh, Frankly, my mom and dad uh, live in the same house I grew up in. I sort of do this on purpose. I believe that everybody has to have some grounding wire in their life. That is it for me. I work in the city, travel around the world, but at the end of the day, I'm really just a Long Island kid, two miles from my parents, and just off of Manhasset Bay. Uh, this is, all, of course, done on purpose. It helps me stay grounded and makes me feel connected uh, to the people I grew up with. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping that some of you listeners can relate to that. Today, I want to talk about curiosity, intellectual curiosity, where it comes from, how it drives us. And while we often know that curiosity has killed the cat, it has also propelled a lot of people into very successful jobs. Being curious is a gift. It pushes you to read, to research, to ask questions. It also pushes you to be a pain in the ass from time to time, 
Although sometimes a pain in the ass in our society is necessary. I have no idea what you're talking uh, because about. Because that uncovers greatness. I didn't call you a pain in the ass. I never so, would. You, got a, little, never would. you got a little defensive there. Oh. A little bit of Shakespearean. Doubt does protest too much. You can always see the curious people in a room. It's definitely someone that stands out. Today's guest is actually an incredible individual. She's oh, one of the more curious, but also one of the more brilliant people I know. And she tries to hide her brilliance, by the way, in her swag, which makes it even more entertaining and I more fun. I do not try right, to look, hide I got some, I got some, I got some Punzone vodka coming in here. Thank you. Thank okay? you. I, so you know, I this told is you. one of our late night podcasts, so there you go. I told you, you but my day was over, vodka. and so it's time. It's time to have a, a nice day. Okay. Well, amen. Well, I, I, I brought you on for a number of different reasons. We had to do a home and away. You had me on your podcast. Mm-hmm. But I really brought you on because of the type of personality you are, because uh, I want our listeners to get a sense for what drives you, okay. how you got into what you're doing. Uh, but let me formally introduce you. You're an uh, amazing journalist. Uh, she is, in my opinion, one of the most successful business journalists out there today. Uh, she's writing right now for Business Insider. Uh, you're the senior finance correspondent for them. Is that correct? Uh, we we pronounce it finance. Finance. In my industry. Okay, so finance. But, but if you want, if you, you say want tomato, I say tomato. Finance is fine. I, I say finance. Finance or but, you know. But uh, please welcome markets. the legendary and the super curious and. The wicked smart Lynette Lopez. Thank you so much. Thank you, Anthony. Okay, so those are all huge compliments coming from you because but they're true. But but also because I know that sometimes you hide your brilliance behind your swag. Oh, you think too. I do that? Yeah, sometimes. You said to me one time. You said to me one time, "I got your hustle, pal." Yeah. Remember saying that to oh, me? Oh yeah. Yeah. Did we really bond it on that? Because once you said that you got my hustle, I'm like, does she really have my hustle? Yes, I do. And then I figured out. So what's my hustle, girl? Your hustle. Your hustle is um, staying close to home, trying to be, trying to be understated in your way in times in terms of people's expectations for you, and then blowing them out of the park. And I found that as a woman on Wall Street, sometimes I have that issue too. People's expectations for reporters and and for my gender can be low at times, um, and I've in my career had to pay what I call the 15 minute tax. And that's the first 15 minutes when I sit across from somebody who's never talked to me. And in that 15 minutes, I have to explain why you're sitting across the table from me and not Barry, what's his name, who's been working at the Wall Street Journal for 15 years, 20 years, 30 years. That's when I whip my out, frankly. And I explain to you everything that I know. And one of the most shocking things that I found about that is that consistently, People are like, well, how do you know that? That happened before you you were born. I'm only 30. Um, that happened before you were born. And I'm like, I read it in a book. Books are one of the most important keys to being successful. People, ri- people write down things that happened before you existed, and then you know them. It's amazing. It's like it adds age to your life. And then you can talk. To, one of the great things about this industry is there have been so many, there are so many people who have been around for so long, and they'll talk to you about their experiences. That gives you context for the things that you read. That's been the most, probably the most important thing. And the two books that I always make my interns or my junior reporters read are um, 
Greed and Glory on Wall Street. Ken Auletta. Ken Auletta, the story of the end of Lehman Brothers' partnership as the we know it. The first end of Lehman Brothers, really, right? Right, exactly. the first end of Lehman Written in the early 1980s. Great book. Mm-hmm. Basically a, a power struggle Lewis between... Lewis Glucksman, you remember Lewis? Yep. Power struggle between two very intelligent men uh, and Pete Peterson. And then the other book that I always have uh, people read is, is less well-known. Um, it's called The Match King. And I think it's very relevant to what's going on with Elon Musk today. There's an there's an argument to be made that Elon has taken on more than he can chew and that he doesn't have enough cash to run his empire. That's not what we're going to talk about. But the book is about the reason why we have quarterly earnings reports is this Swedish, in the 1920s, billionaire named Ivar Kruger who owned a match conglomerate in Europe. And he built his match conglomerate by trading European countries in the interwar years for the monopolies in those countries. And in exchange, he would give them cash loans. Well, he raised those cash loans from the U.S. stock market. So when the U.S. stock market collapsed in the 1920s, everybody realized this guy didn't really have any cash. He wasn't really liquid. He was just moving everything from place to place to place. But no one realized it because there were no quarterly earnings reports. And he took down a U.S. investment bank and apparently killed himself in Paris right before his investors could, you know, call him out for it. Though some people question whether or not he actually died, whether there was a real body. I mean, that's one of those great conspiracy theories in business. But I've, I, I realize that this is one of the forgotten stories that you can learn. Very interesting, very informative, very relevant. So and the, uh, so you got to read books. So the message is you got to read books, and from there you can gain experience and insight. Uh, but I want to go back to the hustle. Okay? Let's do it. Because I think the reason why you saw the hustle in me you got the same hustle. I got a hustle. All right. What's your hustle? Um, I didn't really know for a really long time. So my advice to anybody, by the way, who doesn't know what they want to do is always, what do you do in your free time? And don't include drinking. That's not it. Okay? That's not it. What do you do in your free time? What do you enjoy doing? My first job at a college was working for a New York State senator named Jeff Klein. And it was right during the financial crisis. Okay, and all of a sudden... He's from Long Island? He's from the Northeast Bronx, Morse Park, Wakefield Woodlawn. Okay. It's like a lot of Irish and Italian people in the North Bronx. City Island, he's got some of Southern Westchester. And right in 2008, when I started working for him, people in our district started losing their homes because their Mm. fixed rates were going variable. And our office had to figure out who actually owned those mortgages. And that was an eye-opening experience for me because nobody in the U.S. realized what exactly was going on. And not only that, but Elliot Spitzer had just stepped down as government as governor because he had issues. And we had a blind governor who had no nobody ever thought David Patterson was going to be running New York. And we had a $17 billion hole blown in our budget. We had a contentious presidential election. And we had an, a financial crisis on our hands. It was a shit show. Okay. And what the Democrats had just taken control of the New York State Senate. You know Jeff. He's kind of very middle-of-the-road Democrat. And uh, right after we'd taken control, this guy, Hiram Montserrat, one of the Democrats, broke a bottle and slashed his girlfriend across the face with it. Um, and we lost the majority. And that's when I was like, you know what? I can't take this anymore. Luckily, I had been very stressed out. And in my free time, I was writing a blog. And it was called Frenemies Blog. It was about international relations. And it was kind of lighthearted and funny and trying to explain what was going on in very normal conversational terms. 
which is a lot of what I do with finance at Business Insider. I try to make sure that everything is digestible, everything is in English, there's no jargon, even when I'm writing about anything from Argentine sovereign debt to pharmaceutical companies. I've been covering Valiant for two and a half years. Um, everything that I try to write about, I try to write about as if I were speaking to a friend, because I think that a lot of my audience is very young. We are scarred from the financial crisis. We don't invest. We think the stock market is scary. We don't understand the bond market. You think the stock market is rigged? Do I think the stock right now? I think it's uh, an, a nasty little game because, because earnings 70, don't matter. Well, responding a Pew Research, 70, 75% of the people think the stock market is rigged. Earnings don't matter. It's being driven by the uh, artificial manipulations of the Fed. And uh, the jobs numbers, while they look good on paper, you know, minus 4.8% or unemployment, the real jobs number and the quality of the jobs are being masked by these superficial numbers. It's all about wage growth. To me, it's not about 4% unemployment. You don't, you don't see a lot of wage growth, do you? We're not seeing a lot of wage growth. Why? We're seeing slight, slight wage growth. And I think that there are structural issues that we have not dealt with as a country since the 1970s. I won't blame either party. Um, the country is not galvanized around any one issue. And so when we were fighting the Cold War, uh, the parties had to get along with each other. And they were, had a common enemy and a common goal was to roll back communism and put an end to the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union eventually came to an end, there was a halo effect of the common enemy is now vanquished. There's a common opportunity. Uh, you're old enough to remember the peace dividend. You're old enough to remember... Uh, the tax increase that Clinton put in in 93, which right-sized the budget and the entitlement spending and got us to a budget surplus. But then we lost the common enemy. Uh, and then when we got when we got back, uh, uh, the common enemy turned out to be al-Qaeda. You're bringing me to one of my other yeah. hustles, though, yeah. actually. Yeah. You know that I now and again I'm an adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism. and the first Where you went. Yes, where Let's I talk also Talk about attended. your background for a second before you give that story. So where'd you grow up? I grew up in West Virginia in central Pennsylvania. I can uh, I can clean a horse's hooves. I can muck out a stable. I can milk a cow. I like to shoot skeet. I'm a huge fan of canoeing and lakes and all that stuff. Like naturally born country girl, but I'm also my parents are from the Dominican Republic. Mm -hmm. um, you like the city though too. I love the city. I'm never moving, never leaving. Um, I've been here for 12 years. So this is my dirty dozen year. Yeah, so at 18, you came to the city to go to Columbia? Yep. What'd you major? Uh, sociology and history. Okay. And I had no idea what to do with it. Columbia is very, it's a very impractical institution. I suggest you figure out what you want to do while you're there because it's very like, we'll teach you how to think, but we're not going to teach you what to do. Okay, that you have to figure out. Did you out learn how to own. think there? Absolutely. I, I Mission would, accomplished then, no? I would not give any second that I spent at Columbia back. I love the institution. I will. I give back to it as as a faculty member. I I care about it very deeply. Okay, so now go to that story. You were talking about, we are talking about where we were. I mentioned Al-Qaeda. You said you were teaching at Columbia. So go to I, th I think our, our Cold War mentality might be coming back, and it's because that Putin is very much a creature of the KGB, very much uh, wants the Soviet Union to return. My co-professor and I first designed a course at Columbia, which was meant to teach people digital journalism, which I believe has three ports, which is form, content, and distribution, but we can get to that at another point. But, um, and 
Columbia Journalism is run by older people, older people that didn't have to deal with the disruption of the internet and journalism. Let's give some context, though. When you say Columbia Journalism, there's a, a couple of unbelievably famous schools for journalism. One is the Columbia School of Journalism. Yes. I think the University of Missouri. Missouri. is another one. Um, um, and so the template is an old school template of journalistic objectivity and newspaper, magazine, radio, TV. Right. That's what they know it, that you do. Exactly. They didn't, when I was there in 2011, they didn't know what digital journalism was. They didn't know how it was going to make money. Um, we've ironed some of out, those wrinkles out, but not completely. And so, because the, most of the staff is older, um, they brought me in to teach a digital journalism class because I actually worked in the field. But I partnered up with one of my mentors, Ann Cooper. She was the NPR bureau chief in Moscow when the wealth, when the wall fell. And so we designed our class because I believe the only way to learn how to write is to write. We designed our class as a blog, um, monitoring Russian propaganda here in the U.S. So. Russia Today, RT, the news channel, Sputnik, and a bunch of smaller websites that basically toe the Kremlin's line unabashedly. So Russia Today is New Age Pravda? Is that how you describe it? It's New Age Pravda. It's more aggressive. I mean, it's where the it's where the alt-right, the Alex, what's his name, Joneses of the world meet the ultra-left. This is where the circle comes together on the ultra-ultra side. And it's, uh, it's a nasty, dark place. I started looking into it back in 2011 when I was a student at the Columbia Journalism School and then slowly continued to dig deeper into this hole of security analysts, internet troll followers, you know, Russia experts. We all convene once a year together in D.C. and talk to one another. It's just like weird side hustle. But the amazing thing about it is that you know, we've watched the way the Kremlin has evolved. We've watched the way their message has changed. In 2008, when George Bush said no to the Russian invasion in Georgia, that's when RT really stopped being this, like, friendly, we export the joy of Russia, we're a friendly, cute TV channel, to, no, screw you, America. And that changed. And, you know, people that work at the channel have come to my class and explained this. They're not ashamed of it. They're very, they very, are very conscious of the fact that so, this has so, all changed. So, so, and we can talk about the geopolitics forever, but I want to really focus it back on your hustle. Okay, so what is, as defined by you, your hustle? Number one, you get, you get profiled? Do I get profiled? Yeah. I, I mean, you mean in magazines or? No, no, I mean profiled, like racially profiled do I or get racially personality profiled. profiled. I do. I, do I get racially profiled? Of course. I mean, that whole fifteen-minute tax conversation is yeah. about me. I'm being surprised you. Profiled. I'm surprised you get fifteen. Okay, because when I started in my career, I had a three to five-minute. It wasn't even a tax. But you was, haven't noticed that ejected. I just keep talking and talking and talking. Oh, that's good. No, that works. But I mean, it was like the Doctor Evil scenario where I was going to get blown up and sent down to the brimstone and fires of hell if I didn't have a good three to five-minute story intro. And but I got I get profiled today. Uh, and, and I would say to people that are listening to this, guess what? You're all being profiled, whether you like it or not. Black, white, red, green, yellow, whatever your sexual orientation is. Uh, we as a group of people have a tendency to do that. Yeah, I, I mean, people, there are two things. Like, I'm, I'm brown. 
at three o'clock in the morning, people don't know my last name is Lopez, but when they see my last name, they, that's another judgment too. You know, it's a lot of uh, split second thinking, mm-hmm. and you have to constantly put yourself and what you want, promote what you want mm-hmm. for yourself did it, first. Did it ever bother you, or does it bother you now? Of course, it bothers me. Yeah. How does it bother you? In what way? But. It doesn't matter that it bothers me. There are constantly going to be things in life that are obstacles for okay, you. It so does that, not matter. It, that my daughter sent me a great quote. She must have got it off one of these memes on the internet. And the quote the quote was haters. Have you ever met one that's more successful than you? I thought it was a pretty interesting comment. So what ends up happening is you're getting these missiles shot into you from different spheres and the internet can be very crass as we both know oh my god and uh almost inhumane there's almost a there's a new book out on the psychology of people that write and blog you know nastiness on the internet is basically there's a darkness in people's personalities that they feel through the anonymity they like to expose it on the internet and so what happens to people like you or me you have a decision you need to make am i gonna ignore it and be resilient or am I going to internalize it and let it bother me? No, I mean, I mean, I know exactly where these people are coming from. I know what they want. They want me to stop. So I'm not going to do that. Right. Amen. You know? And that's just that's just logic. Okay, so what drives you? And, then, and, and frankly, what drives you? What, frankly, speaking of haters, I only punch above my weight when it comes to haters. Yeah, I don't consider point. you, Twitter troll, my nemesis. I consider a billionaire that I am writing about and I think is shady. That is my enemy. That's my nemesis. So let's go back to you. Tell me what drives you. What's the motivational force of Lynette Lopez? I think there are two. Um, One of them is just my strange upbringing, being one of the only Dominican kids in the middle of nowhere in the United States and having a family. Why'd your parents choose that location? My father's a physician and my mother runs his business. And my father- What kind of physician? He's a urologist. He went to high school in the United States, went to medical school in the Dominican Republic, didn't want to go to war in Vietnam. So in my neighborhood, a urologist is a male psychiatrist. I'm just letting my- producer know what that he, is. He is a male psychiatrist. And <laughs> frankly, I've been hearing about I've been hearing about catheters and <laughs> kidney stones and all this since I was a kid and I am over it. But so, my but father these, is these very, parents worked super hard though. Worked super hard. Always worked, always provided for us. Sent my sister to boarding school, sent two daughters to Columbia, sent my brother all through private school. I mean, they worked super hard and my father was always very politically conscious went to college under the dictator, always taught me that individuals can make a difference, and they have to make a difference. They have to believe they can. Um, so uh, that was that's always been inspiring for me. I've always wanted to make a difference as a person. And then I've always just thought that I could do better. Like, do you ever look around what what you're seeing and what's out there and say, I could do better than this? I think it's you, a central tenet to success. It's I think gotta any, be. You've any gotta person do it. that sat in that chair that you're sitting in that is successful has had that thought in their mind. I'm gonna do better. I can do better. I, I can play in this game. Uh, I want listeners to hear that and bang it over their heads that you've gotta believe in yourself. 
Uh, you got to believe in yourself more than your coaches, your family members, even your parents. Uh, and you got to have real belief in yourself. Okay, it's not the parental millennial thing. You kick the soccer ball backwards and scored a goal on yourself, and let's give you a medal. That's the sort of self-esteem movement, which I think is nonsensical. It's the, okay, I'm going to target, lock on, build the habits of great success, do the things that make me successful, and think differently than the other cats in the room. Absolutely. You can be different. So what makes a great story, then? You're a great storyteller, by the way. I love reading your byline. So what makes a great story? Like, what what catches your eyes? Say, well, this is going to be a good story. I, there, you know, Susan and I were actually just talking about this. There's usually good or bad, and there's usually something that just gets to you. Like, whether it's absurdity. Like, I knew that Paul Singer suing the Republic of Argentina was going to be a good story when he commandeered their boat in Ghana and took it over and made it stay in the harbor for a long time. That was just ridiculous. That was unreal. Um, Another great story right now is when giants fall. I mean, Anthony Weiner is a great story We're going to get to Anthony Weiner, but don't miss the element in the Ghana taking over the boat because what's fascinating about that story is the international laws that are in place that have been bubbling up for thousands of years. The Maritime Court of the Sea took care of that. Who knew we had a Maritime Court of the Sea? That's my point, so that even though these nations have militaries and even though these nations have sovereign territory and perhaps in their own sovereign domain they have some control over the law or jurisdiction over justice, outside of their own territory they've subjugated themselves to the greater globality of maritime law. You know, there's interstellar law. You and I can go claim an asteroid, and if we can get to that asteroid, pull it back to the Earth, it's your or my asteroid. I can't breathe in space. I'm not interested. Okay, so so I, I, I'm not either, but the point I'm making was makes that a great story is no one would have expected that commandeering. Okay. Let's go to the Wiener story. The Wiener story is amazing. I mean, this is a guy who is smart, is... And seems seems like from seems the pictures the family was named well though don't you think oh. from the pictures yeah. I don't know I'm just asking cheap I cheap shot cheap I know I just I think <laughs> it could be some of the things that's driving his insanity the uh... I you know I I don't know I think a lot of people are I always say that there's the 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 most dangerous gap in humanity is the mm-hmm. gap between who you are and who you want to be. Sometimes we fill that. That gap is filled with insecurity. It's filled with doubt. It's filled with... Are you who you want to be? Uh, I'm getting there. I, I also think that who you want to be is like a limit in calculus. You'll always strive, but you might never get there. But the joy is in the striving. Mm-hmm. If you get there one day, congratulations. The next morning, you're going to wake up and want to be someone else. That's just the human condition. Um, mm, that's because you're 30. At 52, I'll give you a different answer. You know, I think what happens is you have some level of general acceptance of what your strengths and weaknesses are. And if you're doing your job right, which uh, job of life, which is you're working hard and you're passionate about life, then you're there. Let's move on to the stories and the cultivation of the stories. How do you work on your story? You guys, I know that you have great sources. So how do you how do you don't tell anyone that don't tell anyone that New York Times or Wall Street Journal or anything they all think I'm a child. So here's the thing. 
when Business Insider first launched, there was nothing and no one who gave a crap about talking to us just because we were Business Insider. No one. So what I had to do was cultivate real relationships with people in the industry. I could not just call them and say, I had to be relentless. Mm -hmm. I email you 54 million times. I would notice everything about you from down to the color of your tie when you were on television. I would look up what books you might be reading, what classes you might teach, what your wife likes to make you for dinner, like anything, anything to start a conversation, anything to get you to understand a little bit about my personality, show my personality, because quite frankly, I'm really fun. And once you get to know me, you want to hang out with me. And I banked on that because I I know that I'm a very enjoyable character. I really am. What makes you enjoyable? I don't take myself too seriously, as you said, and I have a lot of knowledge about a wide variety. I've lived a really strange you a, life. You have a good sense of humor. And I, yeah, I like to laugh. You know how to take it and give it, which is a super important thing. You I can't like to be laugh. giving it without taking it. You got to be able to take barbs. As and well I'm as not given. afraid of anything. Okay, That's, so this is really important. But you left out a big. You left out a big thing, which I'll add. You 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 have established a level of trust. Meaning, I've never seen you bite one of your sources. No. I've never seen That'll you, never uh, okay, this is going to be a really good short-term, big hit. It's going to be 4 million page views, but I'm going to ruin this relationship in a nihilistic way. Never happened. Uh, you know, you, you have a much longer-term view of journalism, which I give you a lot of respect for. Well, here's another thing, though, and that is, and I watch journalists do this stuff all the time, Never be starstruck. Like, oh my God. No one is as good as you. You are a journalist. You are the eye of the people. You are a storyteller. You cannot be afraid of anybody. Mm-hmm. You cannot think that anyone so is particularly great. Why do people great. get starstruck? Why do they? Yeah. Have you ever been starstruck? Uh, I met Ben Bernanke on the street in Brooklyn once, and I explained to my friends that he saved America. They so you were, were starstruck by were very Gentleman conf- Ben? They were very confused. I wasn't starstruck. I was just, you know. No, have you I been mean, in a situation where somebody walks in and you're like, wow, I'm starstruck? Defined by being self-conscious about what you're going to say, God, but also um, eager to put put together a connection with the person. No, because I Never I been don't, starstruck. I don't believe in that. I don't believe yeah, that's in interesting. that. I have been starstruck. And by who? John Cena? That's your boy. John Cena is a great guy. Although I got past the age of being starstruck by the time I met John, although John is a enormously who's the last successful person who starstruck guy. you? Arnold Schwarzenegger starstruck me in 1995 at the age of 31. I was waiting in his restaurant in Santa Monica, and uh, Maria Shriver walked in. His wife, Maria Schwarzenegger, and for some reason I wasn't starstruck by her, even though I had seen her on television and I was an impressionable 31, never lived in the city, no real life, and my father was a laborer. I was starstruck by him because he was the Terminator. Right. And he was driving around on a Hummer. Hasta la vista, baby. And I had never met a Hollywood celebrity before, and I learned a lot from Arnold Schwarzenegger in that meeting. No problemo. And the, the, at the end of the meeting, let's never be starstruck because he's just another guy. And what you learn is no matter who you're meeting with or who they are, we're all just individual people, no matter what their media glitz or their personalities are. So it's a big lesson for people not to be starstruck. What's it like to work at the Business Insider? 
Um, it's a lot of ideas. You just, you, I am lucky I have a lot of freedom to come up with ideas and bat them around. Um, we're funny. We try to think of out-of-the-box pictures and headlines. Um, it's very relaxed. I, I like How many it. page views now? How many va- pa- page in my, views? In my lifetime? No, business inside. What do they get a day? Oh, my God. Jeez, we are the biggest business website in the world now. Um, and so usually there are about 35,000 people crawling on the site at any given minute a day. Um, and that's more people that are watching like CNBC all day. So every minute of every day, there are 40,000 people just lurking around. There's a difference between page views and u- uniques. When I was running, the finance section. I was a finance editor before they let me just go run around and shoot at any story that moved on Wall Street. Um, I was I grew the site from about four million page views a month to about fifteen million now, or when I left about a year ago. So it's probably larger. Um, it's just been explosive growth. It was crazy going through journalism and a startup at the same time. That was nuts. You found journalism. Yeah. It found you. Sure. It was like yeah. I it was it, I always tell people it. I always tell people do what you love to do in your free time right. if you want to find You a weren't job. doing what you loved. You were involved in political business and you stepped into journalism as a result of your blog. Fair to say? Fair fair to say. You 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 have said to me, so I want you to say it to our listeners that you say that covering business and finance is akin to covering entertainment. Why? As long as you understand that what the language of the business is, you're either making money or you're not, much like entertainment. You're dealing with big egos. You're dealing with people who have are not accustomed to people saying no to them. You're dealing with people who are used to not being disrupted or, you know, you're used to big egos. You're used to glam and glitz and people with staffs, and you've just got to not be intimidated. Is it by okay that. to have a big ego? Um, if you want to have a big ego, you can, but you got to keep it in check. If you're a master of the universe, you got to know that even though sometimes you're right, oftentimes you're also wrong. Yeah, you've so gotta there's got to be a staff. humility. There's an intersection of humility and self-awareness. I have a huge so ego. Like, I think yeah. I'm smarter than most people. I mean, I really do. I am. It's out of control. But when you're when you're humbled, you've got to be humble. Right. You've got to understand that every now and then you will well, fall in a hole. I think it's hole. great advice that you want to have a big enough ego where you can be challenged for anything. Uh, my daughter at age 12 was at City Field on a Sunday afternoon singing God Bless America at the seventh inning stretch at age 12, 53,000 people. How did you get through it? Daddy, I thought I was enough. Isn't that the most simplistic way to go about it? I thought I was enough. I was going to be just fine up there. And to fellow listeners out there, you got to be enough. you got to believe in yourself. Totally. Okay, so there are a lot of journalists that are just mean and out to get people. 
and I find you to be very respectful and nice. That's not to say you're not critical or Barbie when you feel it's justified. No, there are some people I, I'm I, frankly quite nasty to. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm not saying that, but I do think there's a level of fairness. It's not like you're nihilistic about it where you've just got a verbal machine gun and an unlimited amount of ink or an unlimited amount of digits that you're firing off at people indiscriminately. So, so explain the method of how you got to where you are in terms of your sense of fairness as a journalist. You've got to trust yourself and your own judgment. You've got to, it was, it was a while. It was probably a couple years before I felt like I had enough judgment to figure out whether someone was going to be right or wrong on something. And I, I think it's like learning a foreign language. When you learn it, you know you're fluent when you can tell a joke. I probably started being able to tell jokes about finance a year and a half ago. Before that, I was just writing things down and regurgitating it back in English for my readers. Now I know I can tell jokes. Now that I can tell jokes, I know when I think something is real and when something is some BS. And when I see BS, I call it on it. And what you're saying, what you said about my sources, thank you. I appreciate that. I run BS by them all the time. And a and lot of- tell you the truth. And they'll tell me I've the had truth. that happen on the Trump campaign. People have said to me, well, this person said that you're in the know. I said, well, let me tell you something. I'm not in the know. And that person is blankety-blanketing you because, you know, I know therefore they're not in the know because what they're saying to you that I'm in the know about, I know I'm not in the know about. Yeah. And so uh, memo to sources out there, be honest with your journalist friends. Don't try to pretend that you know something that you don't to try to sound or act more important than you really are. So usually I have a peanut gallery for every story that I'm writing, a couple sources that I know that I can run everything by and say, what do you think of this? What do you think? Is this legit? And, you know, they let me know. But you have to have a hunch. And that first hunch comes from your set of knowledge, from your mm -hmm. understanding of the way the masters of the universe in this business work. Um, I consider myself partly business insider's finance ideas journalists. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily, you know, break news about who's going to what fund or who's leaving what investment bank. That's not interesting to me. What have been some of your best scoops? Um, gosh. You know, I, I actually think that some of my best stories have not necessarily been scoops, but been stories that capture the feeling of a place. I think actually the stories that I write about salt every year are some of the best work that I do. Um, about the Nigerians sitting in the pool, flexing their muscles. Two years ago, two years ago, you cigars. gotta read this, this year's story. And this year's story was that the hedge fund universe blows, and, yeah, and there, there's a downer here at the salt conference. Yeah, you, yeah, you'd I be surprised. I thought you were calling the conference the pepper conference after all that stuff you wrote about it. You'd be, you'd be surprised at, um, at how many people contributed to that, to that story. I actually think I, the I'm industry, the, the industry person. isn't a bit of a downer though, and I, I'm not surprised. I'm being honest. And I was teasing you before, but. I, I thought your story was very accurate. Thank I think you. it's very fair, biometric pressure reading of the industry, which is in a bit of a doldrum right now. The kind of journalism that I like to do is pulling back the curtain on something that people think is too complicated or opaque to understand. So when it comes to myelin, pharmaceuticals, the drug industry, healthcare, this has been a very fertile uh, beat for me because it's complicated, it's opaque, it's something mm -hmm. people haven't really understood. And so one of my recent best scoops is just fleshing out the Milan CEO's compensation package mm -hmm. and why the incentives are for her to actually yeah. increase the price of EpiPen rather than listen to the government and, you know, either keep it stable or lower it. See, you know, 
uh, Malcolm Gladwell has written about this, and I do agree with him, so I'll share it with you. He feels that the introduction of free agency in baseball led to the rise in ridiculous corporate compensation. So uh, the minute that a guy like A-Rod could make $25 million a year, a guy sitting on top of XYZ Corporation with billions of dollars of profits would and go more to— more headaches. And, and would go to his board and say, hey, if A-Rod's making XYZ, I deserve to make 4X XYZ. And what it did was it shifted the culture away from what was a healthier dynamic of a ratio of what the— least valuable employee was making from the most valuable employee, which was a much healthier spread before the introduction of free agency. So so we've got a culture gone awry that we need to fix where we need to get balance I incentives totally against. So, so interesting, and I'm just going to read this to our listeners. Your top three most read posts are... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 17 apps every modern gentleman should have on his phone. Number two, the 22 websites every modern gentleman should bookmark. 26 things every man should take out of his closet and burn. What's your fascination with fashion and being a modern gentleman? Okay, so Is first just of all, that it sells I would well like to say page that through? I would like to say that... Um, I would like to say and that how am I doing as a modern like gentleman? That, am I dress appropriately you're, you for you? You always or what? dress well, Anthony. Okay. I have to make Slide sure that shows I'm, are always, I'm in the modern um, gentleman category are with always you. more fertile page view ground than single individual Because men are more vain than women. No, no, no. I'm just saying Why? that these are slideshows and that they're they're always going to get more page views than than a rag, than a single post because you've got multiple slides in one post rather than one single page. Now the other thing that I will say is that I'm going to kick it back to you Anthony and your story of your first interview at Goldman Sachs when you're dressed like a loser. Yeah. Okay. But see, and actually, didn't, I didn't realize I was. That's you didn't so dress like a loser. That's why you needed someone like me to say this is the 26 things you yeah. need to take out I of your wish closet. I, I wish I had I wish I had read that because by the way the stuff I was wearing was very flammable. It was 100% poly, okay? I I could have I could have caught fire at any time during any of those. You interviews. could have burned it right on your body. The, the weird thing about it, though, is that when I called my parents and said, "My God, I got to go buy clothes," my mother was like, "What are you talking about? This is like your best stuff. This is the best of the best." Okay, the poly white on white shirt yeah, with yeah. the black widow tie and the poly black suit. Yipes! With the Capizio cockroach killer shoes. That's how I showed up at the interview, and so and the hair was blown back appropriately in John but, Travolta but style. But see, you got it. You. you you were being authentic, but what, what I'm trying to teach people is but how to be in their... But I want to just say that I was mortified and blindsided by not knowing. But so what you're saying is you're giving messaging out to people it's to wake up. It's important for people to feel comfortable in their clothes, to feel powerful, to feel professional, but again, to be authentic. Mm-hmm. You know, you I don't want to buy something that doesn't fit you or doesn't totally fit your personality. Agree. You need to know what the range mm-hmm. of things that are out there. What do you, what do you tell... A future journalist, you're teaching at Columbia. What do you say to them? Fearless. You got to be fearless. Fearless. You got to do what you love. You got to write about what you love. You got to chase what you care about. And you have to never, never tired, never scared. I've told you this before. Never tired, never scared. And that's and that's it. I mean, it's good for entrepreneurs too. It's good advice. Never it, tired, never scared. Journalism is an entrepreneurial business because you you work in this newsroom, but that byline is yours. Tell us quickly before we go uh, about the podcast, Hard Pass. Ah, yes, my podcast. Um, it's called Hard Pass, Rejecting the Business of Everyday Life. 
and it's a very quick podcast, usually six to ten minutes, about random topics in business. Everything from why diamond engagement rings are overrated to what the heck is going on in Brazil with its economy and with its politics to, you know, why do I need to care about first-class airline pricing? I do it with Josh Barrow, formerly of the New York Times, back at Business Insider, and of course, correspondent at MSNBC. Uh, He's my buddy on that, and we've had it out since, I think, uh, March or something. Why do you think Joe Scarborough has become such a hypocrite? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I'm just kidding. I want to thank you, Lynette, (laughs) for being on TMI. It was a pleasure having you. Uh, you can follow Lynette on Twitter at Lopez Lynette. Yes, hi. Love that. Follow Lopez me. Lynette. You can read her byline at businessinsider.com, Lynette Lopez. And also, if you can, please share this podcast with friends and coworkers who you think may enjoy listening to some of these wacky stories. I want you to email me at podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. Help me figure out how to make this thing better. Follow me on Twitter at at Scaramucci. Watch Wall Street Week. Or if you're not watching Wall Street Week, please put it on in the spare bedroom. The ratings count, even if it's just on. And don't tell my mom I cussed on this podcast, okay? I won't. We'll try to screen those. Until next time. (laughs) Until next time. And, Lynette, I really do hope you come back on our podcast. I would love to. Have a prosperous week. Until next time.